days of just uh, in places kind of like this. Uh, so I'd like to welcome you all to this retreat. Um, a lot of old timers here, old uh, friends coming back, and also to those of you who are new to IMS. Uh, my name is Joseph Goldstein, and I'll be teaching uh, with my colleagues Sharon Salzberg, uh, Susan O'Brien, and Mark Coleman. Uh, so this evening I'd just like to spend a little time creating a certain framework of understanding for entering into the retreat space. You know, it's always a special time uh, to come on retreat. As you know, it takes a fair amount of effort uh, for all of you and all of us to find the time and the energy and the resources uh, to come and be here. And this retreat particularly is a special time because in 11 days it will be IMS's 30th anniversary on uh, Valentine's Day. We moved in. So I did a few rough calculations. And this was very conservative estimates. But in 30 years, that meant about 180,000 yogi days and 1,260,000 yogi hours. <laughs> I thought, there's a lot of sitting that has happened in this hall over these last 30 years. Uh, and so we all come together, you know, on this 30th anniversary year, uh, kind of enter into a space in which there are strong Dharma vibes, you know, which just hold us and carry us in our own practice. And this time is also unique because, as is obvious, you are, we together, are the first group of people sitting in this uh, reconfigured hall after 30 years. Uh, the old wood paneling is gone. <laughs> you know, and there's a whole new feeling and shape to the hall, and so it's kind of an, an inaugural sitting. And all of your efforts during this retreat will be like a gift, will be a gift, you know, to all the yogis who are coming after you. You know, in this rather troubled and often crazy world that we live in, coming together to practice the Dharma, coming together to be on retreat, what we do is create in this world an island of refuge. You know, it's a place where people share and practice the highest values of wakefulness, you know, of mindfulness, of compassion, of love, of freedom. A retreat is this island of refuge where we are practicing cultivating and developing tools for an investigation. 
And it's the investigation of who we are. Investigation of some of the very fundamental questions of our lives. It's said in the tradition that Buddhas come into the world to explore and understand the great mystery of birth and death. Now, what does it mean to take birth? What what do our lives mean in the face of death? We develop the tools for investigating the nature of this mind and body and how they relate to one another. Of how so often we create suffering you know, for ourselves and others in our lives. So we learn how our minds and hearts do that. And we also learn and investigate the possibilities for a greater peace, for a greater happiness, for coming to the end of that suffering. And through the meditation practice, we develop the tools for investigating the mystery of consciousness itself. What is it that is aware? What is it that knows? Now, there are tremendously uh, complicated books, neuroscience books, about the nature of the brain and some beginning exploration of the relationship of the brain and the mind. Well, here we're in a laboratory where we can not study it theoretically, but we can actually experience it for ourselves, turn our attention right back to the nature of the mind, the nature of awareness. So we're experiencing it directly, not simply thinking about it. But for so many of us in the busyness of our lives, you know, these very fundamental questions uh, often fall by the wayside. They get obscured by the rush of our lives, even though they're so basic to what it means to be a human being, to take birth and to die. These basic questions often get overlooked. And then we simply get carried along by the very deep habit patterns of our conditioning. One of the great texts in this Theravada Buddhist tradition, it's called The Path of Purification. and It was written by um, an Indian monk named Buddha Gosa. It's about, I think around 300 AD or 400 AD, something like that. And in the preface to this great text, the question which the following thousand pages answers, the question posed at the beginning of this text is, how can we disentangle the tangle? It feels like a very modern question. You know, how can we disentangle the tangle? So the practice we'll be doing here together is precisely the answer to this question. Because we'll be practicing a way to free the mind from the entanglements of greed, the entanglements of anger, of fear, of hatred, of enmity, the entanglements of delusion, of ignorance. 
As many of you know, and those of you who have been here before who have experience in meditation, and those of you who are new to the meditation will soon find out, the journey of awakening is not an easy one. This is not an easy undertaking. It's not an easy task. The Buddha likened it to swimming upstream, swimming against the current of our own habit patterns. And as we discover, as we look into our minds directly for ourselves, so it's first-hand experience, we just see so clearly the strength of our habits, of our desires and wants and aversions, of judging, of comparing, whether it's ourselves or others. You know, we see all the hopes, we see the fears. And we begin to understand that it takes a very strong interest and a strong willingness and a strong commitment to actually stay awake. It's not easy to do, and we'll be pulled under, so to speak, again and again and again. But the practice of mindfulness is, is like wearing a life vest. So no matter how many times we're pulled under, it's like the buoyancy of the life vest pulls us back to the surface. So that's the buoyancy of mindfulness, the buoyancy of awareness, brings us back to the moment again and again. In this journey of disentangling the tangle, and in the journey of our lives in general, we find sometimes things are pleasant, sometimes things are unpleasant. And that's just how it is. So if you came imagining that the next nine days or 16 days Oh, go up to Barry and have 16 days of bliss. (laughs) It's better to be disabused at the beginning of that expectation because it's not like that. There will be hours or days perhaps where the mind is calm and concentrated and peaceful and there can be a very deep, deep running, quiet joy And there'll be other hours or days when the mind is restless and bored and the body uncomfortable, you know, and you'll be wondering why you ever came. And it's just like this. These conditions keep changing. It's so important, and I'd just like to emphasize this right at the beginning, at this opening evening, so important and helpful to remember that all of our experience is simply a display of changing conditions, you know, that keep arising and changing and passing away. It's like the weather. You know, sometimes it's sunny and beautiful and then the clouds roll in and there are big storms. And then maybe it's really foggy for a while and then the wind clears it all away and it's sunny again. Well, our unfolding experience is very much like that. Don't be fooled or misled by the great thunder and lightning storms, because they're going to come. 
in one way or another. But it's all part of just changing weather patterns of this mind and body. Can we open to them all? It's all part of a passing show. Okay, what I'm about to say now, if you can remember it for the time that you're here, will save you endless suffering. You ready? Okay. We're not practicing to get something. Rather, we're practicing to simply be aware of whatever it is that's arising. Because if we come to practice with that getting mind, wanting mind, it's a setup for discouragement. Because sometimes we will get what we want and often we won't. That's not the practice. The practice is to learn how to be open, to be aware of whatever presents itself. And if we have that understanding, then we can bring this mindfulness, this openness, to any moment, whether it's pleasant, whether it's unpleasant. So there are some helpful attitudes of mind that, that will act as a support for you in this undertaking. And it's often a difficult undertaking. You know, this is a challenging thing that we come to do together, to actually wake up from the habit patterns of our minds. So I want to mention tonight just two, two of these attitudes, and many of the others we'll talk about uh, during the next nine or ten days. One of the ones I want to mention tonight is cultivating or appreciating the spirit of renunciation. Because for this time, it's as if we have created a great meditation monastery. You know, there are these great monasteries in Asia where people have been practicing sometimes for thousands of years. So we've created for this period of time a meditation monastery and the power of all monasteries comes from this quality of renunciation. For many of us, though, and especially in our culture, even the very word renunciation does not sound all that appealing. You know, we haven't had a lot of input, positive input, uh, in our culture as renunciation being something of value. And I think for many of us, we hear it and we feel, hmm, you know, maybe it's a good idea, but it's not something I particularly want to do. One of the beauties of a retreat is that it opens up a very different understanding of what renunciation means. And if we can go beyond our superficial impression of it to something that begins to understand the depth and the beauty and the power of it, we begin to experience the feeling of renunciation as an unburdening, 
It's really about a letting go. It's about a non-addictive quality of the mind. You know, when we understand in a deeper way the meaning of renunciation, it's about the enjoyment of greater simplicity in our lives. It's like unencumbered, unburdened. We, we get a taste of that, and it's a very powerful shift for many of us. So one of the renunciations that we undertake in coming here is the renunciation just of our family and friends. You know, we're leaving our usual life situation, which we've made more or less comfortable for ourselves, and coming in a way renouncing all of that. And this is particularly important for those of you who came with friends, you know, or partners here on retreat. You really need to pay attention to this. Because this is a time for each one of us, each individual, to go inward. It's not a time for interpersonal contact, for interpersonal communication. You know, there'll be plenty of opportunities for discussion with the teachers about your practice. But this is a special, rare time for you to be, even in a group of 90-plus people, to enjoy the power and the beauty of solitude and silence and the ability to go in. For people who are new to the practice, sometimes they come to retreat with a lot of apprehension about the silence. You know, and then, oh, nine days of silence, how can I ever do it? And our experience over these last 30 years is that almost always, at the end of the retreat, the silence is the thing that people most value, most appreciate, have most enjoyed. Because it's a chance, and this is a quality of a renunciation, we can settle back just into being with ourselves, being who we are, without any pressure at all to present ourselves. We don't have to be any particular way for anyone. And this is such a relief. It's like there's some space. It's also the renunciation of having momentary pleasures being the guiding principle for our choices. You know, when we're on retreat, that's not the guiding principle for our choices. About the last uh, five, six, seven years, uh, I've gotten into uh, biking a bit, mountain biking and road biking. And of course it's tremendous fun when you're on top of a big hill and you just go coasting down and you're just flying down without any effort at all. It's really fun. You know, you can go pretty fast. But it's really the uphills that make you stronger. You know, the downhills are fun, but it's the uphills that actually build the strength. 
And at a certain point, one begins to appreciate and even enjoy, you know, the uphill pedaling, because because we feel what it is that it's doing. On the path of practice, there are many uphills and many downhills. You'll be going up and down over these next nine or 16 days. There are what I call work days and reward days. You know, and some days you're going to just be slogging along and it's going to be really hard. And then maybe you'll get a period of time where it's like you're just having a great downhill ride and it's all going beautifully. It's important to internalize the understanding that very often the most difficult times are the times that are most insightful and most useful. You know, so we need to understand this. This is another aspect of renunciation of the pleasure principle as being the guiding choice of our actions and our understanding. There are many things which may not be pleasurable in the moment, that are difficult in the moment, but actually bring very deep understanding. So if we enter into the retreat with this, then there's, then there's energy, there's willingness. You know, there's even kind of excitement you know, for all those uphill slogs. So it's renunciation of having to be a certain way, of contact with family and friends, of really enjoying the solitude. It's the renunciation of just always going for what feels good in the moment. On retreat, it's also the renunciation of any fixed ideas we have about ourselves or fixed ideas we have about the practice, fixed ideas we have about the world. As our mind gets more powerfully trained, as our powers of observation become deeper and more focused, we begin to see with more and more frequency that things are often not what they seem to be. And we often live in the world of superficial impressions. And there's a lot of mystery. There's a lot that's underneath our usual perception of things. We begin to open to that. So this is another aspect of the renunciation, of letting go of our fixed opinions and views and being willing to hold what uh, two different Zen masters expressed in different ways. The Korean Zen master, Sung San, he called it keeping don't know mind. You know, and it's a great phrase, just don't know mind about what's arising. We just want to see it freshly. And of course, Suzuki Roshi, the great Zen master of San Francisco Zen Center, uh, you know, some years ago, he called it beginner's mind. Just keeping a beginner's mind about our experience. He said something so apt about this. He said, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. 
you know, and we know this. When we come to an experience, whether it's an experience in the world, in our lives, or here on retreat, when we come to the experience with a lot of conclusions, oh, I know what this is about, I know what this means, there are very few possibilities there. You know, we've just closed ourselves off through our own preconceptions. Whereas if we can come to things with a beginner's mind, let me understand this, let me look at this, let me see this with new eyes, then really transforming insights uh, can emerge. So this is the first basic attitude I wanted to mention, uh, just all of these different aspects of renunciation as a way of coming to simplicity, of freshness, of beginner's mind. And the second great support for practice is the feeling, the attitude, the quality of loving-kindness. You know, in Pali the word is metta, M-E-T-T-A. And this has to do with nurturing and developing and cultivating a basic friendliness towards ourselves, towards our experience, towards each other. You will have many opportunities to call forth loving feelings towards each other, many opportunities to call it forth for yourselves, because the mind can get into such heavy patterns of self-judgment and judgment of others. So that will happen, you know, for, me, for most of us. That's in there. But if we can remember to always come back to kind of what's underneath all that, you know, come back to our fundamental intention of goodwill, so that becomes a great resting place for us. A line that I've mentioned often on retreats because it's, it's so succinct about in expressing what this practice of loving-kindness uh, is about. It's a line from an, an anonymous samurai poem from the I think, 13th or 14th century. And the line says, I make my mind my friend. You know, and to me that sums up in many ways what our whole practice is about. I make my mind my friend. Which just is this feeling of acceptance, of openness, of willingness to be with it all. For so many years... Early in my practice, I would struggle with the difficulties in my practice, and I would feel like I was a bad yogi, and I would feel often that I was a bad person, just as I was experiencing the shadow side, you know, all the uncomfortable, the things I didn't want to see, the things I didn't like about myself. And then at a certain point, there was, there was a real turning point, which made the practice so much easier. It's when I realized that the difficulties and the side of myself that I didn't particularly like, that these difficulties were not a problem. 
that seeing them all was simply a part of the path and that I would much rather see and understand them than not see them and simply be acting them out. You know, and so then there was actually, it was almost a feeling of delight or of joy as I saw all the difficult parts of my mind. It's like, oh, good. This is a chance to see it, to understand it, to look at it. This is this quality of metta, of making one's mind, one's friend. And we'll be speaking throughout the retreat of the effort needed in different ways to awaken from the deeply conditioned habit patterns of our minds. But we can also understand practice, Dharma practice, not only in terms of right effort, but also in terms of, we might call it a loving surrender. You know, it's just that mindful opening or mindful surrendering to what's arising, not trying to make things different, but to be aware of what is actually appearing for us. And at one point in my practice, I I would begin each sitting, uh, and it was very helpful at that time. I would begin each sitting with the simple inner intention, I surrender to the Dharma. I just surrender to the Dharma. Whatever happens, let it happen. Let me see it. My job is just to sit here. It's to sit here and be with what arises. I surrender to it. And that reminding myself of that created a certain ease in the practice. You know, as we settle in, and it'll take some days, you know, for the worldly energy to to settle down, and you know, as you settle more deeply into yourselves. But as you do, and it will happen over these next days, uh, out of that deepening silence, the deepening settleness, collectedness there begins to arise and emerge a whole range of different kinds of insight and wisdom and understanding. You know, and it's this understanding that brings greater peace to ourselves because we're no longer so entangled in confusion. And out of this understanding, we express quite spontaneously a greater compassion and care and kindness in the world. The Buddha at one point said that the gift of the Dharma is the highest gift. And so this is really the gift that you've given yourselves on this retreat. It's such an amazing thing for 90 people to come together with one intention and that is to be wakeful, to be aware, to be mindful. The world would be a very different place if more people were committed to this. So it's a tremendous gift 
to ourselves and to all others. So again, I would just like to welcome you all to this great adventure. It's an amazing journey. It's just an amazing thing to turn the attention inward you know, and to begin to see you know, in deeper and deeper ways the nature of our own minds, the nature of our own hearts. Now Susan is going to talk a little bit and lead us in uh, the refuges and the precepts. So thank you. So it's a traditional way of beginning a retreat that we chant the refuges and precepts together. So in just a little while we'll do that. Um, But I wanted to make sure first that you all had the chant sheets uh, that were out on the table. They look like this. So if you don't, we could perhaps uh, use the next couple of minutes as a period to maybe stand and stretch and also distribute these sheets to those of you that don't have them. So maybe if you could just, we'll pass them down kind of the center aisle, and if you could raise your hand and distribute them over to the side to people who need them. And maybe stay standing if you still need a sheet. So I just want to say a little bit about them before we chant them together as a way of formally beginning the retreat. I was thinking uh, as I was coming over here this evening that uh, in a very real way, this place, this room, this meditation hall, feels like a place of refuge for me, that I've spent 
a lot of hours in here in your position practicing. And of course, it's not the room itself. You know, of course, it's really what I was doing in this room, those hours spent directing the attention inward, learning how to find a little more ease within my experience, a little more peace. And that that is a tremendous refuge, a tremendous sense, there's a tremendous sense of safety in that. A real, a place where I, my heart just feels naturally inclined. So thinking about taking refuge, quite often it's not any external thing really, but there can be external representations for us, reminders of that place in our hearts where we know for ourselves a sense of more ease, of more peace. And in this tradition, we take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And of course, the Buddha was a person, you know, 2,500 and more years ago, who discovered for himself what it meant to wake up, to be free, to come to a place of deep understanding very deep wisdom, and a great expression of compassion, connection with the entire world. So taking refuge in the Buddha, for us, can be, of course, an inspiration to think that this person was a human being and that if he could do it, perhaps we can do it. can be a great refuge just to know that. But also, for me, it's... Taking refuge in the Buddha is a reminder of those qualities of the awakened mind, the awakened heart, and that capacity that we all share for that sense of freedom, that waking up. So taking refuge in the Buddha. Taking refuge in the Dharma. The Dharma is the path that this teacher, the Buddha, this awakened being, laid out a real, tangible, specific path with technique that we can practice, ways that we can come to understand our own experience very directly, very immediately, very tangibly. So the path of practice. But there's another meaning to the word dharma that I really appreciate in my practice, and in my life. And that is the truth, or the law, or the way things are. And for me, there's a tremendous sense of safety in that, taking refuge in the way things are. What would that mean? To not be at war with our experience. Like Joseph was just saying, you know, sometimes in practice it will be lovely and bright and maybe even blissful, and other times, slog, hard work, facing difficulties, seeing parts of ourselves that are difficult to see, but that we actually can take refuge in all of it. It's the truth. It's what we have to learn from. 
And within all of that, there's this capacity to wake up within the pleasant times and the unpleasant times. So it's a wonderful refuge, taking refuge in the truth. And the third refuge is the Sangha, which in the time of the Buddha referred to the community of monks and nuns, the practitioners who came to some realization as well. So for us, it may be our teachers or certain beings in this world who remind us of what's most important for us. But in a very real way, it's all of us here. It's all of us coming here, sitting down together, the support that we get from sitting with other people, other people who are committed, dedicated. It's not everyone who takes 9 or 16 days out of their life to do a retreat, you know, when you could go on a vacation. It's a wonderful support to have that like-mindedness, to know that when we come into the hall, there will be other people sitting here just sitting, just being with what is. So that's taking refuge in the Sangha. The precepts are a very important aspect of this path of practice. They're really, in a way, the foundation. So at the beginning of a retreat, we reflect on these precepts and make an internal commitment to practice with them. So it's not a commandment, any kind of insistence that we behave in a certain way, but it's really uh, in different areas for us to look at and practice within. And the Buddha pointed these different areas out very specifically. The precepts are very much about not harming So we know that when we come to sit down and be with our experience, if we've been out in the world causing all kinds of trouble, it's not going to be so easy to sit and be quiet and let the mind be still to really be able to look deeply into our experience. We'll be agitated. So behaving in a way in the world that is harmonious, conducive to stillness in the mind and heart, is a support, a tremendous foundation for our practice. It's also an amazing gift that we offer each other on a retreat and a very real part of how we create this meditation monastery out of this room, you know, this building, this place these walls and windows and red carpet. (laughs) Really, it's what we're bringing here, our intention to share this space with 90 and more people, if we count the staff who are here behind the scenes supporting us in these days together. So we take these commitments, we make these commitments to practice in ways that will not cause harm to others or to ourselves. So the areas that the Buddha pointed to are, I'll just list them. 
The first precept is not to harm any other living beings, not killing. And of course, this is pretty much something that we don't do in our lives. But we refine this practice when we make a practice out of upholding these precepts to not harming any living beings. What would that mean for us? It's a lot easier in this season, you know, when we don't have all the little flying, biting beings around us. The second precept is not stealing or not taking what is not freely offered. It's a wonderful thing to be here and know that we're safe with each other, that we don't have to worry about locking up our things, that we're all agreeing not to take what is not freely offered. And another a kind of extension of this precept that I like to reflect on is kind of similar to what Joseph was talking about in renunciation, just accepting what is. So often our lives are driven by our desires, wanting, what can we get, what can we have, what can we hold or accumulate. And so practicing with this precept can also mean just that sense of this is enough, what I have right here right now, in this simplicity, in this moment. It's enough. And it's a practice. Of course the desires arise. The third precept is refraining from sexual misconduct, which in the context of a retreat means that we're agreeing to be celibate for the time of the retreat. That we use all of our energy to go within, to look closely at our experience, to see what we can learn, what we can understand more deeply. The fourth precept is not lying or not harming with our speech. And this, as you can well imagine, is such an important place of practice. It's huge. And in a way, it's what we come to appreciate, even if silence is new to you. At the end of a retreat, it's such a relief just to not have to talk. (laughs) Let alone not lying, but just that relief of not having to present ourselves. You know, to tell each other about who we are and be someone, that we can just relax that and be with ourselves in the silence. So this precept is made quite easy again on retreat because we're mostly in silence. But it's a wonderful one to uh, practice with outside of retreat. Just the refinement of attention to speech It's a big part of what we do in our lives. And it has very far-reaching effects. Can it be helpful? Can it be useful? Can it be true? And the fifth precept is refraining from intoxicants that cloud the mind. 
And this is really meant to be just that, refraining from recreational drugs or alcohol. And it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be taking any of your medications that you bring with you on retreat. So please don't misunderstand. It's really, again, meant to be a real support to our practice. That what our practice is about is clarity of mind. And that that's what we're committing to. So since the time of the Buddha, these refuges and precepts have been chanted in many different places all over this planet. And it feels significant that this is the first chanting of them in this new, newly configured, not yet finished hall together. So if you feel inclined to, you can join in with the chanting. The first part of the chant is done three times. And for those of you who are new, I'll do it the first time through call and response, where I'll do a word or two and pause, and you respond with the same word or two. And then after that first time through, we'll do the second and the third time together. Namo tasa. Bhagavato, Arahato, Sama Sambuddhasa. And together, Namo Tassa Bhagavato, Arahato, Sama Sambuddhasa. Namo Tassa. Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa. And again, in case there are those of you who are new, the first time I'll do a phrase and you can repeat it, and then the second and third time we'll do together of the refuges. Buddhang Saranangachami. Damang Sarnangachami Sangang Sarnangachami Dutiampi Buddhang Sarnangachami Dutiampi damang sarnangachami. Dutiampi sangang sarnangachami. Tatiampi budang sarnangachami. Tatiampi damang sarnangachami. Tatiampi sangang sarnangachami. And the precepts we'll take together, and I'll do them call and response. Panatipata, Panatipata. Weramni, 
Sikapadang Samadhyami Adinadana Hue Ramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Abrahmacharya Hue Ramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Musawada Hue Ramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Sura Meriya Majapamadatana Hue Ramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Thank you. So we'll have a very short sitting to begin this evening. So stretch if you need to. (laughs) And then just come into a seated posture where you can be as upright with your spine as upright as possible without straining. You can put your hands together on your lap or on your legs, wherever it's comfortable. And gently close your eyes. And just take a few moments to settle into an awareness of your body, your body in this seated posture. Perhaps feeling the points of contact, your sit bones on the cushion or the chair, your hands touching each other, or your legs. Very simply, coming into a present time awareness. Just arriving in this present moment. See if you can notice the movement of your breath, just wherever it's most apparent. Perhaps at your nose, or the movement of your chest or belly, 
attention come to rest on that movement of the breath, those sensations of the breath in the body. not looking for anything in particular, not creating a perfect breath, simply connecting your attention with the breath. And when your mind wanders, which it will, just let go when you notice that you're thinking and reconnect with the breath. See if you can do that without strain. Just let go. Just feel the breath. doesn't matter how many times you let go and return to the breath. 
Each time we recognize that we're lost is an important moment of mindfulness. So we'll give more instructions tomorrow morning in the 8.30 sitting. And we know that uh, many of you have traveled from some distance, and it's been a long day, perhaps even a long week, preparing to come here. So uh, tomorrow, the early morning sitting is completely optional. There will be no bell rung for it. Um, 
You're welcome if you're up to come and sit, but uh, you're also welcome to take a longer rest this evening to help you arrive. So tomorrow morning at, at that 8.30 sitting where we offer instructions, there will always, each morning, also be a period for questions. So rest well. See you tomorrow. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.